Joel chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Petuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it. And let your sons tell their sons and their sons, the next generation, what the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns. For the grain is ruined and the new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers. Wail, O vine dressers. For the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed, the vine dries up, and the fig tree fails. The pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field dry up, indeed rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Father, we pray that you would bless now the study and teaching of your word. We pray, Father, you will give us ears to hear. We pray, Father, you give us hearts ready to receive as we, as it were, Lord, make a left turn now into the next of, of what had been called the minor prophets, the next prophecy of your word, Father. And we recognize, Lord, this prophecy is no less significant simply because it comes to us in three chapters. We recognize and we proclaim, Father, that every word of Scripture is God-breathed. Every word that we read and study It's not from the heart of man, but from the heart of God. Inspired by your Spirit, spoke of the Holy Spirit by the Spirit of Christ, so that your people could hear and know and understand your heart, your plans, and your desires for them, for us. And we ask this, Father, this morning, that we would know your will and be aligned to it. And in that alignment, Father, we know we can live at peace and joyfully with great expectation. And we expect Jesus. And we pray to you, Lord Jesus, now, in your holy name. Amen. Prepare for biblical whiplash. We come out of the book of Hosea, continuing on in the Minor Prophets. We go from heartwarming to heartwarning. This is a very different book. If Hosea is like a Hallmark card, then Joel is like a jackhammer. If Hosea is a love song, Joel is more like an air raid siren. It is alarming. It is, it is a call. It is a warning. A siren ringing. It's a rude awakening. I had two rude awakenings in college. <laughs> I came home late one night, my freshman year. My roommate was in bed, sound asleep. And I went to set the alarm, which we had a little clock radio back in the days when people had clock radios. And on it, it had the choice, the radio or the buzzer. And we always woke up to the radio, the soft songs of, you know, whatever station we were listening to. And uh, I thought, well, this will be fun. I'm going to play a little joke on my roommate. And I turned it to buzzer and turned the volume all the way up. (laughs) And then I fell asleep and forgot all about what I had done. And so that buzzer went off. And it was one of those, you know, eh, 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 eh. I don't, whoever invented that should be tarred and feathered for such an invention. I went through the roof. Because when you go to sleep, you forget what you did right before you went to sleep. And I, it just freaked me out. Rude awakening. You know, my roommate did too. So that was funny. But, but my part wasn't. I, you know, did that to myself. I admit this to you. 
The second rude awakening was toward the end of college. Cheryl and I went out to our friend's deer lease in East Texas. And it was an old place out to, to go hunting and basically sat up in a deer lease for three days and froze and didn't see a single deer. It was a great weekend. But we had to be up early. And in the old ranch house where we were staying, there was no electricity. It was very, very out in the, out in the woods. And uh, they had an old alarm clock, one of those with the bells that sat on top of it. Okay, The guy who invented those should be drawn and quartered for doing that. I, I Again, the alarm went off. I, I thought, how quaint, how nice, how ancient looking, this old alarm clock. And I was out of the bed like this, you know. That's the book of Joel. It is a rude awakening. It is a wake-up call. It is a shocking thing. And it is based, we believe, on an event that had taken place in Israel. I'll talk more about in a few moments. I look at Joel as a suitcase nuke. Because it's compact in size, and yet it is devastating in detonation. That's the book. That's the prophet. The prophet's name, Joel. You can probably figure out. Yah-El. It means Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. That simple truth is the most important truth to recognize as we enter into this prophecy. In fact, the most important truth to recognize in our lives, Yahweh is God. Now, over the last few weeks, some of you have been aware that uh, Cheryl and I and our family, we've, we've taken a few pot shots. Um, at first, you might say there were just circumstances of life, but there have been too many in a row not to recognize that, that you know someone's trying to undermine our joy here. And then the enemy has, has been at work. And we were praying about this actually on Wednesday night. And, and Spencer prayed and said, Lord, uh, you know, just protect Rick and Cheryl from the fiery darts of the enemy. And I, I, I kind of chuckled to myself because I thought, they're really not like fiery darts. Our, our brand new washing machine went out and it has to be repaired. Our garage door spring broke. Um, our son had all kinds of uh, cavities and had to have dental work. And it was things like this, one after another. And, and most of these things we all have, you know, circumstances of life. Last night, Cheryl was in great pain in the ER with a kidney stone. So, you know, the fun just rolls on. <laughs> And I, but I laughed because I thought, you know, Satan thinks he's throwing fiery darts. We have this shield of faith, right, which is so big, and it extinguishes the darts of the enemy and makes them no more than just what I call Satan's spitballs. <laughs> they really are. They're annoying, but they can't hurt us. They cannot damage us. Why? Because Yahweh is God. Because there is only one God. And He is almighty and all-powerful, and if we will trust in Him and believe in Him, regardless of any other circumstances, if our faith is in Him, there's nothing that anyone can do to hurt us. Yahweh is God. Keep that in mind. In fact, let me read this to you. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5, He declares this very thing. God says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. By the way, he's talking to Israel there. He says, I will gird you that men may know. What does that mean? I will take care of you across the years. You will exist. I'm adding to this. This is a little Rick interpretation. But you will exist, Israel, across the years as proof positive to this world that there is a God and I am Him. Why are there still Jewish people in the world after all that they have gone through? Because there is only one God and His name is Jehovah. Verse 6, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Listen to this. I am the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Drip down, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. And then he says, Woe to the one who quarrels with this Maker. Yahweh is God. And there is no other. Not the Baals, not the Astra, not Molech, not Allah, not Vishnu, not Gaia, not me, not you. Yahweh is God. But sometimes we try to play God over our lives. I, I Thank you, Josh, for what you shared at communion. I was touched. Because that's absolutely true. The striving. You know what the striving is? The striving is when we slip into that mentality that says, I can have some divine holy role over my life. I'm God over my circumstances. 
And then my circumstances turn and I realize I'm really not. Sitting there in the ER last night with Cheryl looking at her and talking about this and she started talking about all the things that she had to do and she didn't have time for a kidney stone, you know, in the midst of gasping in pain. And I said, honey, honey, be in the moment. (laughs) There is nothing you can do right now but lie here and let the drugs take effect. And by the way, Doc, can I have some? (laughs) We try to rush ahead. We try to be God over our lives. We are not God. You are not God. I am not God. There is only one God. Joel's name means Yahweh is God. There is great peace in that. Joel's father, Petuel, means vision of God, which I think is very appropriate for this little book. Vision of God. Other than that, we don't know much else about Joel. The, the, the background, the history, where he lived. We know he prophesied out of Jerusalem because of what he says in the book, that he was speaking mostly to the southern tribe of Judah, although his message is for all Israel and even beyond to the entire world. Again, we'll get into that. Peter confirms Joel among the Hebrew prophets in Acts chapter 2, verse 16. And he may very well have been, possibly, we can't nail this down with certainty, but possibly he may have been a contemporary of Elisha. Living at the same time, prophesying at the same time. By the way, something that strikes me when we get into these minor prophets, that's very interesting. People say, I wish God would be more clear. I wish He would speak to us. He has spoken so loudly for thousands of years. The problem is not God speaking. The problem is we don't listen. The problem is no one's reading. Because He poured out, if you go back and track the number of prophets, and there are more even than we have in, what we have in Scripture. There are prophets named in Scripture that we don't have letters from. God was constantly talking to His people loudly and clearly through the voices of the prophets, and those prophecies are relevant, many of them, today. So we can hear these things. And I think about Joel living, if he in fact was living in the day of Elisha, that he may have been one of the sons of the prophets. Mentioned in 2 Kings. The school of the prophets. Elijah started, had this group, the sons of the prophets, and then Elisha took over leadership of them. And they were all gathered around, and and he was teaching them and training them a school of prophetic ministry so that the Word of God could be spoken and heard to His people, well, Joel may have been a part of that. From the third and final chapter, again, I mentioned that Joel prophesied in Jerusalem and and to Judah, but also far beyond that. His message, His message is big. When was it written? Ah, there's, There's a question. Uh, Scholars are divided. Most conservative scholars lean toward the earlier date, an early pre-exilic date. When you hear things like pre-exilic, post-exilic, it talks about 586 B.C. Everything pre-exilic happened before. Everything post-exilic happened after because in 586 was the exile of Israel, of Judah, specifically into Babylon. So that's kind of the marker date. When you hear pre-exilic, it means it happened before 586. And so we have an early pre-exilic date for the book of Joel. Based on hints and clues within the book, they think perhaps 840 to 835 B.C. That's the date that I lean toward. I'll tell you why in a second here. But before the reign of Joash. Joash would be the king who rose to the throne in Israel at the age of seven. Interesting story. All of his brothers were murdered by a wicked queen who usurped the throne for a short time in Judah, a a woman by the name of Atalia. Atalia was that wicked queen. She killed off all but one of the royal offspring. Joash Joash was hidden, actually, from her in the temple for a time, and Atalia ran things into the ground. And some think that the judgments in Joel, and the judgment that Joel specifies, talks about were in response to the wickedness of her time. We're going to see this, a locust invasion that took place, perhaps as punishment for the evil goings-on during this woman's brutal reign. I lean toward this early pre-exilic date. Two reasons why. The 840 to 835, somewhere in there. For two reasons. Number one, Joel is quoted by many of the other prophets. Of course, as I was sharing with Cheryl last night, 
many of the other prophets may have also been quoted by Joel. So it's kind of hard to tell sometimes, well, did he quote him or did he quote him? Who quoted her? You know, it uh, doesn't really matter who quoted who because it's all the Holy Spirit. And when we hear one prophet quoting another prophet rather than thinking, oh, he's ripping him off. What we need to think is, boy, the Spirit really wants us to hear this. If he's saying it twice, if he's saying it through Isaiah and through Joel and, you know, going through many of them. But Joel's quoted, we think, by several other prophets, so that may be a reason. The other reason, and this is a bigger reason for me, is through the book of Joel, idolatry is not mentioned a single time. Not once. It is not the sin issue that Joel is dealing with in the rebellion of the people. And we know that it wasn't an issue in Judah as much as it was in the northern kingdom of Israel. In the northern kingdom, it was an issue from the beginning. Jeroboam setting up the golden calf, both in the north and the south. But down in the southern kingdom, idolatry was not the issue at first because they had the temple. And so the people were not as... It was going on, but not nowhere near the problem that they had up in Israel until later on. So early on in Judah's existence, idolatry wouldn't have been an issue that a prophet would have pointed to. And because Joel doesn't mention it at all, some think, well, maybe it was back in that earlier time. Some give a late pre-exilic date. That would be around 597 B.C. At a time when another disaster happened in Israel where there was an invasion of of sorts, not a locust invasion so much, but a Babylonian invasion that was taking place in three waves. And in 597 B.C., 10,000 people, the cream of the crop of all the leadership of Judah, were taken off into captivity. And some say, well, that must be when Joel lived and when he wrote his prophecy. Others come along and they give a post-exilic date after the return of the exiles around 516 B.C. in what we call the Second Temple Period. It had to be while there was a temple because Joel refers to the temple specifically at least three times. So we know the temple was there when Joel wrote. So early pre-exilic, late pre-exilic, post-exilic. Which one is it? Like I said, I can lean toward the early pre-exilic, 840 or so. I like to nail dates down because I think it informs our study. But I think perhaps there's a reason that we don't know the exact date. And every date has its problems. You can find this out. If you do a little study on your own, if you go to some commentaries, every date has issues with with the actual date. Specific things we don't understand and and would point to, well, no, it couldn't have been then, or maybe it wasn't then, and it's a little confusing. But here's the thing. The biggest problem is there are specific prophecies given by Joel that we can't apply to history. We can't say he said it and it happened Some of it, yes, but there are other prophecies that are so big, so cataclysmic, so worldwide, you can't say he prophesied it and it was fulfilled, and by that we can date this prophecy. That's important. This little prophecy is too big for the past. It's a suitcase nuke. It's small, but it packs a punch. And I think God left us without a determinate date for the book of Joel because it wasn't written for the ancient times, but it was written for the last days. What that means is, my friends, it's written for us. And we need to hear the words of this book. I would encourage you, we're going to have three teachings in Joel and be done. I will teach this morning. I'm going to teach on Wednesday night. And then the following Wednesday night, next Sunday, I'm going to be off. Day after Hannah's wedding, I'm going to be uh, in sackcloth and ashes. So, so three dates that we're going to study this book. I would strongly encourage you. I know everybody's got plans, business, and everything else. I would strongly encourage you to take today. Obviously, you're here. Good job for that. Wednesday night and the following Wednesday and walk through this book because it is pertinent for our time. It is pertinent to the last days. Look at uh, chapter 2. Skip over to chapter 2. I'm going to give you a little overview this morning to understand the book a little better. Chapter 2, verse 28. Should be familiar to you if you study the Scriptures before, if you've read them before. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. 
and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. He says in verse 30, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now you Bible students know At the Feast of Shavuot, Pentecost, the Apostle Peter quoted Joel and spoke those words. He applied them to Joel, and so he verifies, he gives that internal verification of Joel as a legitimate prophet. But inspired by the same Spirit, remember this, that inspired Joel, the Spirit of Christ, the one who authored the book of Joel, Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 16, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Verse 17, remember that the apostles are there. The Holy Spirit has come upon them. It looks like flames of fire above their heads. They begin to speak in other languages. Everybody there from all over the region, all different languages are hearing the preaching of the apostles in their own language. And it wasn't because Peter was stopping and speaking French and then speaking a little Italian. No, he was just speaking And everybody was hearing in their own language. An absolutely powerful, amazing move of God. The outpouring of His Spirit. And pointing to this, Peter says, Hey, hey, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes, And it shall be in the last days. Now, if you have Joel chapter 2 open there, look at it. Look at it and listen as I read. Peter said, it shall be in the last days. Joel said, it will come about after this. Well, that's a little different. It's a little slight change there. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. That I will, uh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So it's slightly different, very close, slightly different. Why is it different? Probably because Peter was quoting from the Septuagint, which we've talked about in here. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And it was the primary translation that was being used in the first century by the Jewish people. So that's that's why it would be slightly different. It was translated from Hebrew to Greek and then from Greek to English. And so we have that translation, which accounts for the difference. I think God knew exactly what He was doing with that. And there's a reason that God specifically wanted to be translated Hebrew to Greek and then to English so we could hear it this way in the last days. But it raises a question that's been asked about the book of Joel. Was this fulfilled at Pentecost? The prophecy of Joel, especially in chapter 2, verse 28 through verse 32, was that fulfilled at Pentecost? Peter said, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. I will answer that question when we get to it, either this Wednesday or the next. So if you want to know, that's the only way you're going to find out. For now, recognize this, and it's important to to hear this. Peter, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, does this at a minimum. He connects the prophecies of Joel to the front end of what the Bible calls the last days. Okay, What Joel said in 840 or 597 or 516 doesn't make that much difference back then. But for us, Peter says, this is last day stuff. And Peter began to then kick off the last days 2,000 years ago. We've been in them ever since. I want to talk about two related issues. This is a last days prophecy. Two related issues this morning to understand this and as an introduction to Joel. Dispensation and devastation. Dispensation and devastation. First, let's deal with days of dispensation because there are four of them. Four interesting, unique days that the Bible talks about. Days of dispensation. A dispensation is simply a time period. And if you've heard of dispensationalism, or those who are dispensationalists, or those who teach dispensation, all it is is saying God related with man in different ways, in different seasons, in different periods of time over history. And you can see these very clearly. It's a very interesting way to kind of see how God has interacted with man in different seasons. But there are 
four different days I want you to think about this morning. Number one, the last days. The last days. The Bible makes it clear again that the last days on earth began 2,000 years ago. We sometimes call it the church age. Uh, the age of grace. Jesus referred to it as the times of the Gentiles, although the times of the Gentiles run beyond the church age. Jesus said in Luke 21-24, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Some got really excited in June of, of, of 1967, the Six-Day War. Got really excited because for the first time, the Jews had control again over Jerusalem, had authority over Jerusalem, even up on the Temple Mount. And so they think, oh, well, that was it. The times of the Gentiles fulfilled. No, Jerusalem is still trampled underfoot. It's still a hotbed. It's still a problem. And it will be in the coming tribulation. So the times of the Gentiles is the last days, but is beyond what we would call the church age. I don't want to confuse you all because there's a lot of terminology here. So just raise your hand if you're confused. And I'll say, please put your hand down. <laughs> Romans 11.25. Paul said, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The last days. The last days are times into which Jesus Himself speaks directly. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us through His Son. So we're not going through the voice of the prophets. We're going for the voice of Jesus. We want to hear from Jesus. Because He's the one who speaks to us now in these last days through His Word and by His Spirit. It is Jesus we are listening to. That's important in this age, I think. And now, wonderfully, in the last days, the voice of Jesus can and should be heard. The last days are also called the year of His favor. When Jesus came, He he, he quoted from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2, that He came to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then He stopped there. But you all know Isaiah 61, verse 2 goes on and says, And the day a vengeance of our God. But that's another day. The last days, right now, we are in the time, the favorable year of the Lord. But for that, the last days are marked with increasing trouble. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.1, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. My friends, if these last days got rolling 2,000 years ago, where do you think that puts our generation? For those who would say, He's been a long time coming, and therefore He will be a long time coming, I would say that's a complete wrong interpretation or understanding. If He's been a long time coming, it means He is far more likely to come any time. And so I've said before that we are in the last days of the last days. We're in the last of the last days of the last days. At the last. We're close to the end. It has been a long time, but the last days which started with the beginning of the church age 2,000 years ago are fast coming to an end. And so the prophecy of Joel is so pertinent to us to say, wake up! The alarm's going off! Be on the alert! Because these are the days fast approaching the next day. Chuck Smith once said, the curtain is about to go up on the final act. These last days are fast coming to an end, gang, and they are giving way to a time of unprecedented devastation. But before we get there, another day comes. The last day is number one. Secondly, the day of Christ. The day of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7. Paul talks about our awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, Paul said, He will confirm you as blameless. He will purify you for the day of Christ. Paul also mentions the day of Christ in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 14. In Philippians 
chapter 1, verse 6, He says, I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He says in Philippians 1.10, So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And again in Philippians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul writes, Hold fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. What is the day of Christ? The day of Christ is that day when in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. 1 Corinthians 15.52 The dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and 17 My friends, the day of Christ is the rapture of the church. And it is the day that comes toward the end of the last days, although there's overlap. The last days will continue on a little further, but the day of Christ hits and comes at any time. And comes suddenly. And comes without warning. The day of Christ. The day when the Bible tells us the church will be caught up, pulled out, the ambassadors reined in, brought home before the devastating war that will follow. The day of Christ. That's a good day. That's a day I'm looking forward to. That's the day that could come yesterday and I would be fine with it. The last days, the day of Christ... But there is soon after that coming another day, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. I say that ominously because it is an, it is an ominous, <laughs> it's an ominous day. Obadiah chapter 1 verse 15. The prophet in his single chapter book says, For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Obadiah is the first of the minor prophets, the first one actually in Scripture to relate that phrase to us, the day of the Lord. He speaks it out. Joel, however, is the one who develops it. And if you want a single major theme for the book of Joel, that's it right there, the day of the Lord. He's going to refer to it a number of times. In fact, let's let's look at those. Joel chapter 1, verse 15. Joel 1, 15. He writes, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Skip down to chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. Near, by the way. That throws people. Well, if the day of the Lord was near and it was 2,800 years ago, why hasn't the day of the Lord come? If it was so near. The Hebrew word for near is karob. Karob. And if you want to spell that out, it's you can spell it Q-A-R-O-B. Karob. Near means closeness. It means next to. It's a word used of your neighbor. Your neighbor would be karob, your next door neighbor. Understand the word near here is more about proximity than it is about time. What does that mean? It means that all that holds back the day of the Lord is the Lord. Now what Joel is saying here is the day of the Lord is this close. can come at any time when He determines it's time. It doesn't mean it's going to come instantly. It's going to be quick. It's going to be immediate. It just means it's near. <laughs> You know, we, we tend to put off or, or think that, that tragedies and devastation can't be anywhere near us, and yet a tragedy is as near to you as the car that just drove by. That could have hit you, could have been a tragedy. It was near. It's not about time, it's about proximity. The day of the Lord is near, yet He holds it back. We'll talk about how and through whom as we get further into the book of Joel. Skip down to verse 11 of chapter 2. Joel 2, verse 11. The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great. For strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Skip down to verse 31. Chapter 2, verse 31. 
sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And go over to chapter 3, verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. All passages about the day of the Lord. And Joel surrounds this with explanation and understanding and revelation. And we'll see all of that as we go further into the book. Isaiah also talked about the day of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6, he said, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come about as destruction from the Almighty. Did Isaiah quote Joel or did Joel quote Isaiah? doesn't matter. The Spirit has now spoken twice through these two prophets that we might hear it. He spoke of the day of the Lord through Obadiah that we might be aware of it. Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 6 said, Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Now stop right there, gentlemen. (laughs) I don't know about you. I don't even want to know. I've told you before, the, the night of all three of my biological kids' birth was hard enough on me. There's a reason why women give birth and men don't. We can't handle the truth. <laughs> that kind of pain. But, but Jeremiah the prophet is saying, ask about that. If a man can give birth, and then he says, so why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. It's the time of Jacob's distress, Jacob's trouble, the day of the Lord. He says, however, he will be saved from it. Praise the Lord. Amos talks about it. Zephaniah covers it. Malachi refers to it. And Peter and Paul report it as well. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. When God refers to something once, we should listen. When he says it over and over and over and again and again, we better know what he's talking about. And yet we live in a world where if you talk about the day of the Lord, at best, Christians would say, oh yeah, it's like judgment or something, right? At worst, the man on the street would say, what's that? And yet God has gone to great pains to explain it to us, to speak it out. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5 too, you know, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 1, we request you brethren with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So the Thessalonian church was starting to freak out. They were under great tribulation. They were going through some turmoil. And someone began circulating information that we're in the day of the Lord and we miss the rapture. And Paul says, whoa, Nellie. That's not, 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 not Nellie, not you personally. Sorry, Nellie. But I didn't mean you. He says, whoa! <laughs> he says, let no one in any way deceive you, it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Gang, that's Antichrist. And the day of the Lord is a day where he will be manifest. He will be seen for who he is. This world leader will stand up. Paul, as many as eight centuries after Joel, connects the day of the Lord now to the apostasy of Antichrist. Peter connected the day of the Lord to the beginning of the church age. Paul connects it to the very end after, actually, the church age has ended. After the day of Christ comes the day of the Lord. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Peter says, and check this out, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And this has been confusing for some because they go, okay, well, so so when is the earth going to be destroyed and how does that fit with the book of Revelation and God's overarching, overarching plan? How, how, does, how does that all work? Peter now takes us to the very close of the day pointing to the next day on the calendar. What in the world are you talking about, Rick? Let me see if I can explain I think the day of the Lord is best understood according to Jewish thinking. 
When did the Jewish calendar day begin? Sundown. Sundown. Right. The night, the, the Jewish day begins for us at night. Sundown is the beginning of the day. The day of the Lord begins with the tribulation. Sundown. Darkness. Deep darkness. As described in detail in Revelation chapter 6, verse 19. But the Jewish day then runs through the next day. Sun up. Morning. Noon. Afternoon. It's always better the next day, isn't it? You know, it was a little hard to wake up this morning, but today's better than last night was for me. And it's often the case. The day of the Lord, gang, includes not only that time of tribulation, that seven-year period of wrath that the Bible describes very explicitly, but it also includes the Millennial Kingdom. That's part of the day of the Lord. That continues for a thousand years after that, and it's talked about six times in Revelation chapter 20. Well, Rick, how do you know that the day of the Lord includes that glorious millennial kingdom? Well, because Joel tells us. Look at Joel 3, verse 18. Joel 3, 18. And in that day, that day, the day of the Lord, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Okay, that's the millennial kingdom. That water flowing out of the house of the Lord, Ezekiel described that. So Joel now tells us very clearly, and we should understand, the day of the Lord begins at night with wrath, but then it turns into day. A long, glorious day, a wonderful day, the millennial kingdom. The day that we're looking forward to. The rule and the reign of Christ Jesus on earth, out of Jerusalem, is part of the day of the Lord. The Jewish day begins at night. The Jewish day runs through the next day, and the Jewish day ends the next evening, sundown. The final day that Peter hinted at in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, and it follows at the close of the day of the Lord. So listen, the last days that we're in, the day of Christ, the rapture of the church, the day of the Lord, that time of tribulation, all the way through the millennial kingdom, and ending then with, number four in your notes, the day of God. The day of God. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which, the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. So get the timeline down. The Bible is so easily clear and understandable on this. The church is pulled out. Day of Christ. We're in the last days. Day of Christ takes place. And then soon after kicks off the day of the Lord, a seven-year time of tribulation. Continuing then on through the millennial kingdom because God is directly intervening in the affairs of man through that whole time, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord then comes to a close, meeting the day of God in which in which the elements will melt with intense heat, the earth will be destroyed, the heavens and the earth will be destroyed. Why? Because Isaiah 65 tells us, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. I'm making all things new. I create a new heaven and a new earth. In Revelation 21 and 22, after that millennial kingdom, talk about the new heaven and the new earth. I mean, the millennial kingdom would have been enough for me, Lord, but He says, no, there's more. I got more. I just got to tell you, God is like is like Cheryl, actually, in some ways, because she can't keep a secret when it comes to birthdays. She just has to tell. She's so excited. You want to know what I got you? You know, it's, boom, it's out there. And that's what the Lord's doing. You get to the end of Revelation chapter 20, and He's just told us about this glorious millennial kingdom, and He goes, I got to tell you more. I mean, you've got to hear this. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. It's marvelous. But before that becomes the destruction of the heavens and the earth as we know it. Well, when does that take place? How does that work out? Where are we at that time? Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 makes it clear. John says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. The destruction of heaven and earth. So at the close of the day of the Lord, we come now to the day of God, which is Judgment Day. Judgment Day. 
for all those who would choose to be judged by their deeds, by what they did, by their own work. If you want to stand before God on your resume, feel free. I would highly recommend against it. You would much rather go into the kingdom by grace because you will not go into the kingdom by your own works, by your deeds. And on that day of judgment, as, ju- as the Lord is judging the quick and the dead, the living and the dead, as He's judging at that time, we're there with Him at the throne in the presence of God, and at the same time, He's destroyed now the heavens and the earth because He's going to create all things new. The day of God. Four days. Last days. Day of Christ. Day of the Lord. The day of God. And in these days, we should know what's on Jesus' mind. Because the Scriptures are so absolutely clear. And because 1 Corinthians 2.16 tells us we have the mind of Christ. Why is it important that we know these things? Because Christ wants you to. And it will affect the way we live. He openly and, and clearly communicates this day with worldwide implications, by the way. And note that as we go through Joel over the next couple of Wednesdays. Worldwide implications. Last days worldwide, not just a message to the Jewish people. So those are days of dispensation. That's sermon number one this morning. Sermon number two. We'll do this quickly. Days of devastation. Days of devastation. We've talked about the day of the Lord. We need to know that God's plan is in motion and is fast approaching that day. It will not be reversed. And understand the day of the Lord begins as a day of divine devastation. Joel chapter 1, verse 1. Let's just poke into the first chapter a little bit. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Petul, Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land, has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days. Understand that Joel begins his prophecy pointing to something that had just happened. There is a backdrop to this prophecy, an historical backdrop, and Joel says, look at what just took place here. Has anything like this happened? And then he goes on, tell your sons about it. And let your sons tell their sons and their sons to the next generation. This is important, that phrase next generation is literally let them tell their sons to the following many. Not just tell your sons, your grandsons, and your great-grandsons and then stop, that's enough. No, you keep telling them. You pass this word along generation after generation after generation. The next generation there is not just a term for Trekkies. And pretty much Trekkies are the only ones who would get that. What does that say about me? I don't know. In other words, Joel's prophecy is given as an alarming read right up to the day of the Lord. It is for us. Verse 4. What was that great event that had just taken place? What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. What the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. The backdrop of the prophecy of of Joel was a massive insect plague that had hit Israel. And by the way, you can very easily understand verse 4 as the life cycle of the locust. These are not four different bugs. This is one bug, one locust. The gnawing locust shows up and swarms and then gives birth to the creeping locust that doesn't have wings yet, but it can move and it can eat and it can devastate and it begins to strip. This is the life cycle of the locust in verse 4. Let me give you an example, a somewhat modern example from the last century. In 1915, and you can look this up, there's information about this on the internet, it's one of the positive things about the web, from March to October of 1915, there was a devastating locust invasion in what was then called Palestine, the land of Israel, and Ottoman-controlled Syria. Absolutely devastating. Witnesses at that time described clouds of locusts so thick they blocked the sun. Female locusts immediately began laying eggs a hundred at a time. One square yard would hold as much as 65 to 75,000 eggs. 
In a few weeks, these eggs hatched. They looked like large ants. They couldn't fly, but they could creep, they could strip, and they covered 400 to 600 feet every day, stripping everything in front of them. After two more stages of molting, these baby locusts became adults with wings, and the wreckage and the cycle continued. I had never realized this before, but in a locust plague, you're not just dealing with the locusts who come in at the beginning, you're dealing with those who are who are come from the eggs and begin to be born and join the swarm. It is very hard to put this thing down to stop this. According to a New York Times article published 18 uh, April 23rd, 1915, they said American funds and food were essential for keeping the Jewish community in Palestine alive and aid was delivered by US Navy vessels. The American colony in Jerusalem established soup kitchens to feed starving residents in Jerusalem. The Times reported, quote, few crops or orchards escaped devastation. This was especially true on the plain of Sharon, where the Jewish and German colonies, with their beautiful orange gardens and vineyards and orchards, suffered most severely. In the lowlands, there was complete destruction of crops, such as garden vegetables, melons, apricots, grapes, upon whose supply the Jerusalem markets depend. Few vegetables or fruits were to be had in those markets. The report continued, In Jerusalem and, and, and Hebron, the heaviest loss from the onslaught of the locust has been in connection with the olive groves and vineyards. There's a picture online of the Mount of Olives, specifically of the Garden of Gethsemane, before and after the locust invasion. Before it's thick and green and lush, afterwards completely stripped. Says uh, olive oil is a staple food among the peasants and poorer classes. The grape, too, is a, single, is a similar staple among all the classes. When the larvae appeared near Jerusalem, the Times related, residents were mobilized for immediate organized resistance. Ten-lined boxes were sunk in the earth in the direction which the locusts were advancing. Men, women, and children were giving flags, and the flaggers would drive the locusts together in a dense column toward these traps. That was the only way. They literally had to mount a resistance against these invading insects. And it said that the Turkish governor demanded every man deliver 20 kilos, that is 44 pounds, of locusts into the traps. Unbelievable. Devastating to the land. Note this in verse 6 of chapter 1. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. Some have said, well, is that Babylon? And I would say, no, it was locusts. It was an actual, literal locust invasion that took place. Because of what Joel said back in verse 2. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's day? Tell your sons about it. We need to talk about this. This is a picture of the devastation of the day of the Lord. Just a picture of it. David Levy, in his commentary on Joel, wrote, Those in the Middle East call locusts the army of God. And as an army, they march in regular order, camp in the field at night, and in the morning rise with the sun, dry their wings, and fly in the direction of the wind. And by the way, the Bible tells us, Proverbs 30, verse 27, locusts have no king, and yet all of them go out in ranks, like an army, an invading force. Levy continues, they number in the billions. They can cover an area of up to 10 miles in length and 5 miles in width and have been known to fly 17 hours at a time, covering over 1,500 miles. Their vast number can blot out the sun, bringing temporary darkness over the earth. And no doubt Levy was pointing back to the 1915 invasion of locusts into Palestine, the land of Israel. Is this starting to bug anybody? Is it creeping you out? Just trying to strip this down, you know, to its, to its base amount here. But there's something gnawing at me here. <laughs> Seriously, and this, I want to end with this this morning. The plague in Joel's day was sent by God. Yahweh is God. And there is no other. And as we read earlier in Isaiah 45, verse 7, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity, I am the Lord who does all these. 
The prophet Amos, chapter 3, verse 6, said, If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Calamity? Devastation? Problems? Gnawing? Stripping? Why would God cause calamity? And there are those who call massive destructive events in the world, still call them acts of God. Right? I'm not used to bother me till I realize Yahweh is God. And He does have authority over all things. And He does have absolute power. Why would God send a locust plague? Why indeed? It's a wake-up call. It was an alarm being sounded 2,800 perhaps years ago, a long time ago, however you date the book of Joel. God was already sounding the alarm. Wake up. Be aware. The last days are coming, and with them the day of the Lord. The suitcase nuke of Joel, gang, is truly not about annihilation. It is about salvation. It is an alarm that we would see what's coming, be ready for what's coming, and be saved from what's coming. And you know what? The Lord may send things into your life that really gnaw at you. He may do things to strip away your sense of being God yourself. He may uh, swarm into your comfort zone, creep into your thinking, to try and get your mind, my mind, back on what matters. All the rest of the things that we worry about and discuss and debate and think through and act on, all there's so much in our lives that has nothing to do with God's greater purpose. And so oftentimes, here come the locusts, and they start gnawing and stripping and creeping and swarming, and they start to devastate all these things that are so important to us. This matters so much. You know what? God can restore the land. And if you've been to Israel today, what happened in 1915, there's not even a possible trace of it today. God can take care of that. God can blast kidney stones. God can deal with the silly things in our lives. Oh, this is, oh, what are we, how are we, you know what? Yahweh's God. And it's His will that's going to be accomplished. And we either align ourselves with that and walk with Him knowing that, or we're off fighting locusts, trying to get them into the trap, you know? And it's futile. Look at, Verse 14 of chapter 1. Last verse to see. Here's why God sent the locusts in the first place. Here's why God would create calamity. Verse 14 says, Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Let's get back to what matters. The day of the Lord is near. And currently, the Spirit of the Lord is the only power that's holding it back. God's Spirit has only ever been the power that has held back the onslaught of the day of the Lord. What's remarkable to me is that even in the day of the Lord, God's going to be calling out salvation. Mark 13.29, Jesus said, Even so, you too, when you see these things are happening, recognize He is near, right at the door. Here's the thing that's really amazing. God does not want to devastate you. He doesn't want to destroy me. He wants to save. He doesn't want to strip. He wants to sup. He wants to have dinner together. He wants to be in fellowship. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Revelation 3.20 If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And I pointed this out before. That verse is not a verse for the lost. It is a verse specifically where Jesus is talking to the church. And he says, I'm knocking. I'm at the door. You're fighting locusts. But I'm right here. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a holy assembly. Gather the people of God and cry out to The Lord. Because Yahweh is God and He alone is our salvation. Amen? Amen. That's why we open the Bible. That's why we read these prophecies. And whether it's a doorbell 
or an alarm. I pray that you hear it. And I pray that we all will open our hearts and our minds to Jesus. And so we bow this morning, Lord. And we acknowledge that we have heard the alarm. We pray, Father, that You will, by Your wisdom, over the next couple of of teaching times and study in the book of Joel, really prepare our hearts and minds, perhaps in a way we haven't been prepared before, to be aware and alert and looking forward to the day of Christ. And Father, I pray this morning if there is anyone among us in the barn who is disturbed by the words of the prophet Joel... Lord, if anyone is shaken from sleep, if anyone is rudely awakened, that we will turn to You. And as You say, that we will just cry out to the Lord. We need You, Father. And we need to be reminded that You are our God and our Savior, and there is no other. So we bless the name of the Lord. We praise the name of Jesus. And we offer you ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I'll let you chew on that this week.